Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, gents, when you're ready. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is my special guests today are Taylor Pearson and Jason Buck of the Mutiny Fund. It's a great name. You have to find out. You have to listen all the way to the end of the podcast to figure out why it's called Mutiny Fund because I forgot to ask the question up front. It's long volatility and tail risk, particularly apt for this time of the market cycle. I'll be talking to them right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. How did you two guys meet? Uh, I wrote an article and Jason read it and we started emailing. What was yeah, the article? It, it comes out of crypto, yeah. Yeah, I was... Um, well, I'm trying to think when this would have been. It would have been like early 2018, I think probably 2018 at some point. Uh, I wrote an article about um, stable coins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was interested in the idea of stable coins. And then um, Jason was also interested in it from the perspective of like, uh, how could you construct a basket of assets that was like stable over time? And so we started talking about that and then got into. Um, we had both read a bunch of the similar stuff around tail risk and um, traded options some and, and then sort of went from there. So the mutiny fund is, uh, from what I can see, it's a tail risk fund. Is that is that a fair description of it? Yeah, we'd say tail risk and long. We always say it's a mouthful, but always long volatility and tail risk. So we have the tail risk in there. I'm sure we'll get into this, but it's built around also long volatility to maintain some of that bleed that you would get with just pure tail risk, like a universe or something like that so how do you construct the long volatility component you use people like chris cole um so the way we look at it is like uh long volatility is a dynamic way of trading tail risk both left and right tails and so they're they're using their own algos or market timing to either structure those trades so whether it's um logica with wayne that's using straddles and gamma scalping the position to manage that theta bleed but either way he's long volatility and maybe that's the best describer for long volatility is your your long volatility on both the left and the right tails right and that that's probably the simplest way and so you use we use firms like logica that straddles and then firms like uh, artemis that strangles and we also use some opportunistic um traders like um headwaters volatility but like that combination gives a kind of a, a long the long volatility profile we add back in those like kind of deterministic rolling puts that would be typical tail risk. And then around the periphery, we use like volatility arbitrage and future inter, interday futures traders to kind of manage that bleed or give some uncorrelated rebalancing premium that we can try to maintain that profile during a risk on cycle. So what's the objective with the fund? Is it to provide blow up protection or is it to you, you can yeah. allocate or it, however much of your portfolio to it and then it's both uh it's going to manage through the good times and through the bad yeah the idea being that uh spoonful of sugar so for decades you know taleb and spitznagel and all these guys have been saying you know you should just eat the bleed of tail risk and we just felt behaviorally people aren't willing to do that so we believe in ensemble approaches so we think through the ensemble approach we can try to maintain a flat or slightly positive return during a risk on cycle 
that will make sure people hold it on their books. Yeah. So that way when the ri- so it's it's really just that spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down to make sure you maintain that tail risk protection for the blow-ups. We want to try to use an ensemble uh, rebalancing premium approach to try to maintain a flat to slightly positive carry instead of that negative carry, and then your calpers, and you get rid of it right before the blow up. <laughs> they, always, they always seem. To, it's funny, isn't it? Like there's the two challenges that I can see with with tail risk is the bleed over a long period of time makes it hard for folks to hold, and then on top of that, really what they should be doing as the as the uh, the short side short volatility side of their book, however that's constructed, as that's going up, they really should be rebalancing away from that and increasing their allocation to long volatility. But that's hard because they're looking at that side losing all the time. And it's a sickening thought, particularly when we've been through these long, very long periods of volatility suppression. Then the other challenge is when you finally get the blow up, it needs to go the other way. You need to be able to rebalance away from uh, that side of the book that's working so that you can now go and buy all of these undervalued assets on the other side, uh, it's just hard and a lot of funds to achieve that because the lockup and so on. Yeah, yeah I so think we'll, we go ahead, Taylor. Sorry. No, so to going back to the goals thing at some point, like the, I think the way we generally talk about it is like the goal mm-hmm. is to like help investors maximize their long-term compounded wealth. Like that's the goal. And you know, from our perspective, the reason we started this was like th- this was you know we felt like an essential piece of being able to do that. Uh, and just like was really hard for non-institutional investors to get access to these sorts of um, these sorts of strategies. So yeah, I think that's I think you're right, right? You, you want the end investor to look at the whole portfolio, right? It's like this is improving the long-term compounded growth of your portfolio, and uh, you know, yeah, we've had to be conscious to some extent of like as a, people are going to look at it as a line item, whether or not they should, um, and you know, they probably should to some extent, but like by having it. Uh, by sort of trying to bundle it up and like, you know, look at this in the context of the broader portfolio. Uh, it's a little more palatable. Chris has got the great analogy of um, Dennis Rodman, the worm yeah. with the rebound. Yeah. saying, You know, if you get, if you've got a really good offensive team and you've got one guy like the worm getting the ball back and, and, you know, feeding it back to the guys who are offensively strong. And that's, so the worms, your, your volatility, your long vault portion, and the rest of the team is your shortfall portion. And so he goes and gets the rebound, feeds it back to the offensive team, and all of a sudden you, you're much more powerful than you'd be by yourself. Exactly. And the way, and we're big, Taylor and I are big fans of like deep value. And we think this actually pairs phenomenally well with like deep value. And because, like, to you alluded to, it's like when that sharp sell off happens, a liquidity event crashes, and we, we provide like almost like a convex cash position. Now you have tons of cash sitting on your books. So you rebalance into value at even better prices. So, like, it pairs incredibly well over market cycles with deep value. And, and the way we look at it, too, is we don't believe you should try to time that insurance. But by having managers that are trying to time that insurance, but an ensemble of them, it allows you to just hold that on your books, which allows you to take more risk of that implicit short volatility. So you can hold more deep value if you have like us sitting on the books and you can sleep at night. Yeah, you're gonna get you're gonna get those. Like, just using something as simple as the CNN fear and greed index. I don't know if anybody else tracks that. I th- I don't know how how intelligent that's regarded in the in the vol community, but it's just something for you know for non vol guys like me. I just gotta look at it. When I look at the performance of that thing, I go back, you get about two bites of the cherry every single year where you get CNN fear and greed goes you know, below 20, which is very much the fear side, below the, the fear side. That's, that's sort of, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you've got a, 
a, a long vol component. Like you're getting two opportunities a year to take away from the long vol component to jam it a little bit longer so you get that third pocket opening up with a little bit of extra cash in it. I, I think that that should be a very successful strategy. Yeah. If we just can convince more people of it, that's that's all we're trying to do. <laughs> it's always going to be hard when it's a market like this, right? Where it's just yeah. What? Why would you hedge anything? Like the best performing asset in the world is the S and P five hundred. Why? Why? Why hedge anything? It's just going to keep on going up in a forty five degree line run. Well, yeah. and this market's really interesting too because it's like it's going up in a forty five degree line, but six months ago it went down at a you know an 88 degree line right <laughs> that was just so a blip yeah right but i feel like it's a little everyone's like on both sides of it. it's just like yeah it's going straight up but like it just went straight down you know what how is this gonna play out the market just completely forgot that that happened i think it's it's as if like you just you could just rub that off this the chart and it just keeps on going straight through it as if it didn't happen yeah. and to your point that's when you know we that rebalancing is phenomenal like at the end of the march we would allegedly been up like percent after fee. like then you could have rebalanced back into all of your stock positions and then just crushed like since then. Right. So how how did you so you you, you wrote the article on Bitcoin? It's a or stable coins. How do you get from stable coins to to volatility? Uh, I mean, I, like I think at least philosophically for me, like I don't know, crypto and like I think you could think about like Bitcoin if you want to take Bitcoin specifically, like. It is a long volatility thing, right? Like the only way in which Bitcoin could possibly make sense as an investment is like if stuff gets weird, right? Like if the stock market just keeps going up 20% a month, inflation stays at 2%, nothing happens. Like it's it, it, in my mind, it's a long volatility bet. So like, again, going, like, as Jason said, like we're sort of big believers in this like ensemble approach uh, in general and like in particular ensemble approach to, to long volatilities, you know, Mutiny fund is a portion of that. You know, could look at commodity trend or gold or Bitcoin as just you know other aspects of like expressing that sort of long volatility piece of the portfolio. So, has Bitcoin behaved like long volatility? No, I wouldn't say it has. I would say it has. I think it has the potential to do so in the future. If um, you get some sort of inf if you get if you get inflation or hyperinflation, that's the kind of scenario where it works well. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think it's, I mean, it's regarded as highly speculative and I think like that's the appropriate thing and like you should, you know, people should position size it as though that's the case. Um, but yeah, I think like, it, it has interesting theoretical properties to me that it could behave um, like, a, yeah, it's, you know, similar to a gold or a, uh, in an inflationary environment. What, what are the theoretical properties? Uh, I mean, so like you look at... Um, like, what is it that makes, um, you know, gold particularly, you know, why is gold considered a good, I wouldn't say it's a good inflationary hedge, but hyperinflationary hedge. Um, you know, the primary thing is like the stock to flow ratio that it is, uh, you know, that 100 years of history, like in no year have you been able to mine, I can't, can't tell you the number off the top of my head, it's like two and a half percent. You know, the, go the total gold stock has never increased by two and a half percent. And that's just like a function of geologically how gold is in the Earth's crust and like how expensive it is to mine it. Um, and all those sorts of things. And so like Bitcoin has the same property, but it's not a function of geology. It's a function of um, the way in which the consensus mechanism is established and new Bitcoins are created. You know, that's that's programmatically determined. Um, the whole sort of like proof of work mining algorithm um, is basically a way uh, that makes it um, you know, prohibitively difficult to change that, or, or at least uneconomical to change. That. Like, I think that's part of the interesting thing about Bitcoin is like it's, 
it's more profitable to play by the rules than cheat the rules, right? Like, you know, it, you, you can, there's a sort of like, um, uh, there's all these like game through scenarios, like under what, like under what scenario is it profitable to under, like to, um, undercut Bitcoin. And it's just like, it's hard to find those scenarios, right? Like, you need, like, I, like, you know, the Chinese government decides it's not in their national security interests. Like, yeah, then you have like a huge externality, but if you just look at it as sort of a, a microcosm, um, the security model is very interesting and the stock to flow model is very interesting. And then I think it has some properties that gold, um, lacks i mean one the stock to flow ratio is theoretically more predictable it's not, it is more predictable like you know you know we can say with an, a high degree of certainty you know how many bitcoins are going to be created over the next uh 12 months whereas like gold you know you can you put it within a band but you know there's there's some variance there um it's obviously like easier to transport right like i need a usb stick or i need 24 words um in my head and so you, know, you get people that make the like uh you know, if you were a Jew living in Germany in the 1930s, like it would have been useful to have a thing where you could remember 24 words and like that would be your wealth and you could, you know, get out of town. Um, so I think there's like interesting theoretical properties there. And then I think like another element of it that like we really haven't are just starting to see is sort of this like programmability element, right? There's this whole sort of um, one of the recent trends this year has been like decentralized finance or DeFi um, and that you can do all these, you know, you can program money now, right? That's that's sort of the interesting thing. And you know, to some extent, you know, you can already do that, right? Like you can, some people can go to J.P. Morgan and like write these big complex contract, you know, contracts for you know certain rivers or whatever. But like, what happens when that's sort of more broadly available? You know, probably what happens initially is like what's happening now is some extent of like a lot of fraud and people doing gambling and like a bunch of stupid stuff. But you know, in the long run, it seems very interesting to me. Can I ask you a noob question? Uh, I understand the scarcity argument when it comes to Bitcoin, but isn't that sort of um, thwarted a little bit by the fact that you can, it's so easy to create a competing currency? Yeah, there's a really good, there's a, a guy named um, John Pfeffer. He's, I can't remember, he, 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 he was at, uh, he's like at a big PE firm. He wrote an interesting paper. This was like 2016, 2017. And I haven't really read anyone that's written sort of like a good, um, rebuttal to, I think it's like an institutional investors take on crypto assets. Um, but like basically the thrust of his thesis is, um, let's, let's just say there's like, you know, two cryptocurrencies, uh, like you're always going to hold the one, uh, where the, uh, you know, everything else being equal, you're going to hold the one that is like more secure and like a better supply schedule right and so like the the only way in which for example you have a new cryptocurrency that likes like supplants bitcoin as just like a um store of wealth is you have to you know basically like convince the market that that's going to be a better store of wealth in some um in some capacity i just think that's very hard i think like with the security stuff especially with like bitcoin the way the mining industry is structured there's just like a lot of, like it's totally doable in the same way like you could start another search engine right that, you know is better than google but it's just like there's a lot of network effects okay um that make that hard yeah I mean, i'm not there, i'm not explaining that super well but no i understand that there, there, there are there are some competing like ethereum's i, I the, the another noob question but ethereum supposedly got uh some properties that are uh, makes it more useful than than Bitcoin. Yeah. 
but they're totally right. different. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like I don't. It's I don't. It's, I mean, it's, we'll see how that uh, sort of shapes out. But like I think Ethereum only works. So like then this was the paper I mentioned. Like this was specifically one of the things he talked about. Is like um, let's just say it's just Bitcoin and Ethereum, and like the the bet Ethereum is making is you know. Ethereum also wants to be a form of money, but it thinks, you know, if we have all these applications, which have all this utility, because it's easier to program on Ethereum than it is on Bitcoin, um, I'd say sort of at a high level, the way I think about the trade-off at least is like Bitcoin is um, sort of more secure, but less adaptable or less flexible. I mean, the, um, the programming language Ethereum uses is Turing complete, which gives a lot more flexibility, but also increases the attack surface, whereas Bitcoin uses a much lower level programming language. Um, which makes it more secure, but also makes it like much harder to write applications in Bitcoin. So, you know, some applications that you can write in Ethereum, you can't write in Bitcoin at all. And others might take, you know, 50 times longer to right. write just because of the level of the, um, the programming language. Um, but, you know, it, let's just say you have those two things. And so like effectively, like Ethereum then is like your working capital, right? I'm going to use this thing, um, to execute these smart contracts that are going to be able to do all, you know, whatever these, these different terms of programmable money thing, yield farming, um, all this stuff. But if it's a, if it has a high, if you know, it has a higher inflationary, uh, schedule, you're not going to store You're going to min, I could see, you're going to minimize the amount of working capital you can hold in that thing. And then you get into the, um, right. The velocity problem, like money only has value if, um, you know, people want to hold it. Like as soon as you have something with a very high, um, velocity of money, like the value goes down. So like the, right, the, the, whatever crypto wins is, you know, it has to minimize that velocity, um, in some capacity. And so like Bitcoin seems much more focused on that than Ethereum. I'm going to, I'm going to flub the, the, the name of the law, but isn't that the, the good money drives out bad? Isn't that the, isn't yeah, that the Gresham, word for that theory? Gresham's law, law yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, it's, uh, I think it's, the, I think it's called like the theory of exchange. It's been a while since I've read up on this stuff. Like uh, MV equals PQ is what it is. And I'm not going to remember what all the variables mean, but it's like the qu the quantity of the money uh, times the price of the money is equal to the velocity times the, and I'm like forgetting what M is. But basically the way it nets out is if the velocity is high, the price is low. And if the velocity is low, the price is high, sort of all other things um, being equal. And so like the challenge, I think, with a lot of these, like Ethereum in particular, but these sort of like more smart contract, we're going to be utility is they have like, it could be Ethereum is wildly successful in terms of uh, people build applications on it, it becomes highly utilized, but also like accrues no value, right? Because like the logical thing to do is to store all your to keep as much as your money as possible in the thing that is more likely to retain value and then just use whatever the minimal amount of working capital you need is in the thing to Ethereum or whatever the smart contracting token is um, to execute the things. And, and then you get into like security issues, right? Like if it, if it doesn't have value and like the mining or the consensus mechanism is like based on having value, does it become less secure and, you know, you get into some sort of death spiral and what does that look like? To what extent does having a macro view or do, to what extent do you guys have macro views that you, you you sort of employ in the management of the fund uh we don't so the way we look at it is like you don't want to time your insurance so that's why we tried to build the product the way we did that you can just hold it indefinitely um and we actually come from kind of the background of uh 
you know, Chris Cole's Dragon portfolio comes out of the intellectual uh, path work of Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, which then uh, Ray Dalio piggybacked on for risk parity, which then like Chris Cole's Dragon portfolio is like a, a modern interpretation of that. But the way we try to look at it generally is that nobody can predict the future. If they can, you know, none of us would be talking to them. You know, they'd own New Zealand at this point. <laughs> so, so it's it's a, it's a it's an entertaining game to predict globally macro, you know, picture and what's coming in the future. And I think all of us get caught up. Our egos get caught up in that game. But we try to build uh, a portfolio of this ensemble approach to long volatility and tail risk, so that way you can hold it indefinitely and it makes you sleep at night while holding these implicit short volatility long gdp assets so we try not to predict futures at all and then you know we we rebalance frequently to also you know harvest a little bit of rebalancing premium off of the dispersion of our managers returns yeah that's that's uh that's refreshing to hear it's uh, uh it's <laughs> I, as much as i I like following macro the way I like following yeah. sport, but I wouldn't ever use any of it in anything that I do. Yeah, you you would, and I feel the same way. It's entertainment, right? I love watching the entertainment, and then the but the hardest part is you can't let your ego get caught up in it because it's so it's so sexy for your ego. You're like, oh, I can, yeah, you're, I'm, I agree with my green hero. I disagree, you know. I agree with you. Like you just get yeah. into these loops, and you're like, I can predict the future. I'm all knowing. I'm omnipotent, right? It's so sexy to get caught up in. But like I was watching. Um, Dan McMurtry was on uh, Real Vision yesterday. And then I was just looking through all the comments and I was like, I was so confused because everybody's like, I disagree. He's an idiot. He doesn't know this, this, and this. And I'm like, you know, instead of typing that up, there's a market where you can go and take the other side yeah. of this trade. Like, <laughs> why are we pontificating? Like, this is a, show me, you know, show me your book, put your money where your mouth is. There's no reason to talk about any of this. And then what I always find fascinating about global macro that drives me nuts is like, you can have guys that completely disagree with each other. So, Let's just say like uh, Mike Green and Ben Malkman completely disagree. But the way they construct their portfolios is what matters. But everybody's worried about this narrative, but it's like as long as they construct their portfolios with a ton of asymmetric bets, they can both be right and wrong on simultaneous things and still end up out ahead on their P&L. And, right. and nobody sees that. Like everybody gets caught up in these these beautiful narratives. And I understand it's 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 a beautiful framework they build, but like literally nobody can predict the future. So it's, I don't know, it's, Perverse. I, I couldn't agree more. That's almost always my first question when someone has one of these very elegant theories. Yeah. Like, what, how, how do you execute it? Like, what are you, what are you going to do? Yeah. What's the construction? Exactly. What's the? Tell me your position sizing. Tell me the other positions. Show me the asymmetry of the trade. Other, then that's all that matters. And it was, it was interesting. I tried to do that with like Hugh Hendry because, like, in the past, he talked about being a centipede. If he's got a hundred positions on, he doesn't mind chopping off a few arms. Right. And so that that's what matters, not what he thinks about. Are we going to negative rates or not? Like it doesn't matter. It's about the show me your book of construction of the trades. It's it's. I find Hugh in particular. I love Hugh. I'm not I'm not trying to be critical of Hugh, but when yeah. he when he lays out his theory, it seems to me that it's got this. This is going to happen, and this is going to be the impact of this, and then this is going to happen. And by the time you're at like the third or fourth derivative, I'm like, well, what's the what's your What's your confidence around each of those? Like, what's the probability that each of those occurs? And then, you know, multiply any probability, any set of probabilities, even reasonably high probabilities in a sequence. And that the chance that they all happen in series or in sequence, you get a very low number at the end. Right. Exactly. And that's why you need to construct these hugely asymmetric trades. And so you only need a few of them to hit out of, you know, 30. You know, you just that's because you're adding, like you just alluded to, you're adding such a specific path dependency but they do that also to get such cheap convexity. So it's this trade-off between nailing the path dependency 
versus the convexity of the position. So if it was a, a very vanilla trade, you might only get three to five to one payout. But if it's crazy uh, path dependency, you might get 20 to 51 payout. So then you're trying to layer in like path dependencies, hoping you hit a few of them. It's the parlay bit. It's it's hitting yeah, to the exactly. racetrack and trying to get a, a number in a row. Man, you you have. It's, I swear you're in, inside my computer, Toby, because <laughs> I just interviewed Diego Perea, and that's what I talked about. Was is I I use the analogy of parlay bets, and as all of us know, with a parlay, you get one of them, two of them right. You're like, oh shit, oh shit. Then the third <laughs> I'm one, you're back to zero every time. <laughs> and so yeah, that's the essentially if you have exotic correlation trades, that's exactly what you're doing. It's a parlay bet. And we know, and like so, yeah. If you've been a sports better, you understand the excitement, but you also understand the probabilities are incredibly low. Yeah, you bought a lottery ticket. It's fun, but it's yeah. it's it's going to pay off like a lottery. So, you you I read in your bio, uh, Jason, that you you come from a property development, real estate. Is that so? How how do you get from real estate in two thousand and eight to volatility in two thousand twenty? Sure. So. It, they actually they, they bookend each other incredibly well. So basically, from my side, this has been a 12-year project to bring Mutiny Fund to fruition. So in 2008, I was a commercial real estate developer. I owned a several uh, restaurants as a part of a restaurant group. I even owned a, a wireless, uh, wireless internet service provider. So I owned all these businesses, but primarily commercial real estate development. And when you have that liquidity dry up, like we saw in 07, 08, 09, and see how that just cascades through the entire system, that pain was so profound for me that I figured there had to be a solution. So as entrepreneurs, we're just, you know, Taylor and I are just problem solvers. So I was like, there's got to be a way to hedge some of this liquidity, this macro, macro liquidity risk, right? Because as an entrepreneur, idiosyncratically, I can really believe in myself and I can really work hard on my projects. But if the global macro liquidity drives up, I'm screwed along with everybody else. And then especially if you're looking at from the commercial real estate development space is you have to predict like, five years out, right, if you start a project. And you have to hope that everything Ceteris Paribus is going to be low vol from now to those five years past dependency right. for you to pay out your pro forma idea of what this project is going to pay out. And so if you have to take such long time horizons, there's got to be a way to hedge your macro risk. And so for the last two decades, I've always I've been trading uh, my own book uh, ever since I was you know even a teenager, but um, really got into trading options and trading the VIX around 2010, 2011, and really was really working through a lot of these ideas. And so through losing money doing these trades is how the best tuition in the world, right? That, that pain makes you dive more into it and learn more and more and more. It's why I don't get upset about Robin Hood like these other old guys do. It's like you forget when you were young, we were all doing really stupid things. We lost money. And that was the pain and the tuition that made us learn more, right? So it's it's no big deal. And then so throughout that process of trading uh, options and, and VIX and everything, I started tracking a lot of the other managers in the space, you know, reading Chris Cole's work, et cetera. And just over time, just felt uh, there's so many path dependencies to risk off that you need to cover a lot of path dependencies for it to work. And this is where Taylor and I really came together was, you know, we were looking at placing our own money with uh, with like, say, an individual manager. But there's a lot of uh, idiosyncratic risk there. So we both right. believe in taking this ensemble approach to really reduce that idiosyncratic risk and, and, and cover as many path dependencies as possible, knowing none of us know a priori, once again, what the future is going to look like. And so to do that, we figured um, this was a multi-year project to work with the lawyers and everything and to figure out all the workarounds and everything to actually offer a product that uh, retail, our family and friends could use, but also we could use. And so part of that, to get to that ensemble approach, is you had to be able to aggregate a bunch of retail investors to a QEP minimum fund. And that's how we could actually place our own money 
with this ensemble of managers. So we actually, you know, built it for ourselves and our family, knowing that it would also be helpful for other people. Yeah, I've uh, because I I met Chris in about 2010. That was sort of my the beginning of my education and volatility started around about then. It took about yeah. two years, about a bottle of wine a night for about two years with Chris <laughs> explaining it over and over and over to me until I finally, I did finally get it in about 2012 and then hasn't really worked that well since 2012, although uh, it, it did work uh, earlier this year. So how did you guys, how did you guys fare through the big drawdown? So... I'll let uh, I'll maybe let Taylor talk about the timing of when we launched our fund. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we actually we went live in April, like mid-April. Uh, so we started. I mean, I guess as I'm sure you're aware, like you know, we thought we we started like sort of working on it in earnest, beginning of 2019. We're like, oh, we'll just like get the lawyers, drop the docs, and raise the money, and it'll be like no problem. And you know, it took basically a year. I think we finally got like all the docs and legal stuff done, like just before the holidays. Um, of 2019 so we started basically like fundraising like mid-february and so like march was you know we was it's like very interesting conversations right it's like literally like we're on the call with someone and like the market's down four percent since we started the call and um compelling pitch so yeah it's we either got really lucky with the timing you know it was like obviously it was on everyone's mind or you know really unlucky with the timing so you know ideally you know, February 15th would have been a nice time to, to have launched. I think Chris got a little bit lucky with his timing. I think he might have launched either January or February 2012 and there was a big vol spike and then not much in the intervening period from sort of that, that time until basically until this year. Yeah, that that's big why, drawdown. Exactly. Yeah, I think you're exactly correct on that. And part of it is, this is why we use that ensemble approach is like you can get pops in volatility in different parts of the space, whether it's in VIX, futures or in options. And so we try to use those ensemble of managers to capture some of those pops and then redistribute it across the portfolio to help the P&L while we're waiting for that big risk off event. So that's another way to try to cover, um, you know, how do you carry this position during a risk on environment? And then, as you know, too, what's nice, too, is as as we get closer and closer to that risk off event, those options and, and volatility become suppressed and those options become cheaper. So you're actually loading up on inventory yeah. serendipitously right before the crash happens. It's one of the nicest things about it. You sort of, yeah, yeah you're, you're sizing into it right at the right time. Except for the hard, the, the, the flip side of that though is that can go on for years. Right? Yeah, well. <laughs> you're like, this is great. My position, so it should be coming. And then it's, it's you know, uh, 17, 18, 19. And you're like 20. You're like, when is this going to happen? That's the, I read, I read Taleb's, um, Taleb's more readable book, not, not, not Black Swan before the, the one that came filled by randomness. Thank you. Yeah, I, I read. I full... agree that it's his most readable book. That's that's the one. I, I honestly, I, I I couldn't get through the other ones. I'm sorry. Uh, I think that one was successful, <laughs> and so then he could just tell the editors to fuck off and do whatever he wanted. Like I think fooled by randomness, he wasn't that big, and so like he had yeah. to do what the editors told him to do. So then was... it got got streamlined. But then after that, he was like, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm the I'm the bloke who sold three million books. So I'm gonna exactly. I'm gonna give you the manuscript, and you're gonna publish it. Exactly. Yeah, that first book was spectacular, and I and I, I when I talked to Chris, I was like, oh, here we go. This is how you actually implement this strategy, and this makes total sense to me. Like everybody's, everybody underweights the tails because they happen so infrequently. Everybody's clustered around the mean, buy the tail, sell the mean. This game is really easy. And then the thing that the thing that Gladwell points out, Gladwell wrote an article about him. Uh, I think it's called the blow up artist or something like that. And he said the only thing basically that you can that can happen to you is you can just bleed out 
And I was like, yeah, but these things happen so frequently. The thousand-year <laughs> storm rolls around every seven years. You're not going to bleed out. Yeah. Of course, here we go into one of the longest periods of volatility suppression. And then, and I just it, you see it like I see it happen to value guys get value guys wind up their funds. It's one of those things that you know I find value so compelling from a theoretical logical standpoint. How could you ever not do value? And then you realize that there are these very very long periods of time where it doesn't work. And the reason that value starts working again is all the other value funds just get wound up. They just disappear. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know that. You know that pain of of of, of long of looking back over long time periods. And but part of it though. Where, where we take a bit of umbrage with that that people don't consistently look at is the holistic effects of your portfolio. And I think Mart Spitznagel at Universa, which is you know uh, Celeb's partner, where Mark actually runs Universa, is that the way he explains it so well is it's a combination, right? So if you use Universa, let's say it's a negative three percent bleed, bleed just to throw out some numbers, but they're allowing you then to carry ninety seven percent exposure to the S and P, and let's say they're truncating your left tail at negative fifteen to negative twenty percent moves, and you're blocked off from that down. And so the combination of that rebalancing over multiple business cycles, actually, you end up ahead. So it's it's a weird thing. It's more about actually being able to hold more implicit short volatility assets, long GDP assets, and comfortably hold those in rebalance and compound wealth better over time. But everybody only looks at that line item. So a lot of those, a lot of the arguments this year from like AQR, et cetera, we're just talking about the line item and not talking about the holistic portfolio construction and what that allows you to do to compound your personal wealth and savings over time. And so like, for example, I think that uh, universe is, you know, likely cherry picking the timeframes as we all do, but like that combination uh, compounded at like 11% where like a 60, 40 was compounding at like, you know, six to 7% over the, over the similar timeframes. Yeah. There was a great article just after uh, Spitznagel had the big win where it was like Goat Farmer makes four and a half thousand percent, yeah, something yeah, like that. Forbes. Yeah. Forbes. It's a classic that was Forbes a, headline. Yeah, that was, uh, that was weeks of me in, in Twitter DMs and everything breaking down what that actually means. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was, yeah, it's incredibly frustrating to have to yeah, deal with uh, sensational journalism. Well, I think Chris was in the same boat. He's like, he's got all of these people who've invested with him saying, well, why didn't I go with this other bloke who's returned four and a half thousand percent? He's just a goat farmer. Like, here, here are you. You're doing this stuff all the time. It's like, well, well it's calculated yeah. the way that they do. Well, there's two pieces that I'll break it down quickly. One, by the way, his goat cheese is incredible. I grew up in Michigan <laughs> and he has this beautiful farm in northern Michigan, but he actually... He smartly bought that farm after 0809. He made such great returns in 0809. He invested in in a goat cheese farm. It's actually arguably the best goat cheese in America. So I'll set that aside. That's a, it's amazing. My wife really will be excited cheese. to hear that. I think goat cheese tastes like it comes from a male goat, but my wife loves it. So it, it's <laughs> we have it in the house. Well, uh, I, I, it actually makes me think of that. There's a I, I don't know how true it is, but there's a there's a thesis that if you have goats that eat uh, poison ivy, that gives you immunity to poison ivy by drinking okay. their milk or eating their cheese. Yeah. I smell a DTC brand. Someone's going to say that. <laughs> there's, a there's a supplement company in there for sure. But then the 4,000% return, the easiest way to break it down, I'll just say it simply, that allocation to Universa was up, let's say, 12.8% total in March of this year. And the S&P was down. 12.4%. So net net, you are up 40 basis points. You're up 0.4%. So they did their job. They covered that tail risk. They covered the downside risk. Fantastic. Good on them. But it's not a 4,000% return. Let's just be clear about that. Once again, looking at the holistic portfolio construction. But it, 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 does make some, it does make some sense if you can think about 
if if they can truncate the left tail so that you draw down say half as much as the market, you're yep. already a hundred percent ahead when the market recovers. So then if you're giving away a little bit every year, a few percent, that's quite a few years before that unhedged portfolio catches up with you. And then, you know, likely you get another big drawdown somewhere through that. And that's all you have to do. You just have to keep on sort of staying. As long as you're not drawing down as much, it does create, it's, it's a much more attractive return profile anyway. Yeah, it's a more attractive return profile. But I also want to highlight again that like with that, profile you're able to hold 97 percent s&p exposure where in 60 40 you only have 60 percent. so you're actually right. also outpacing when you're waiting for it to happen minus your bleed so it's it's that trade-off of 97 percent exposure minus a small bleed how, how does that compare to 60 40 during risk on and then obviously the compounding is just exceptional when you have these risk off events when you when you're able to rebalance into that that lower nav point when you have an environment like this, which is an unusual one, so in the late 1990s, um, in the dot-com boom, there was this, uh, and Chris alerted me to this a little while ago, and I've always wondered if we'd see it again, where you had this, where the market's going up and you have upside volatility. So the volatility is going up as the market's going up, and, and ordinarily it's the other way around. As the market goes down, volatility goes up. As the market goes up, volatility goes down. And here we are in this environment again, likely driven by maybe Robinhood option positions or, or how do you guys fare in, an, in a market like this and um, what, what are the causes? Why are we in this unusual environment? All right. So there's multiple ways to look at this. So um, the way to look at volatility in general is, is if people in risk on times, un unfortunately, they start to see S&P and, and VIX as negatively correlated, right? Because they are, because the way, but the way VIX is not, uh, only downside volatility on S&P. It's just outsized volatility. And and unfortunately, you know, the truism of the market takes the stairs up and the elevator down is why we usually see that negative correlation and see VIX up when S&P is down because of the, the violence of those moves are outsized of what the standard deviation is expecting that return to be. But if you have a melt-up scenario and the, and the S&P or individual stocks are ripping up to the upside, but those, those returns are outside of that standard deviation for that day of what VIX is expecting, you're going to have VIX up, S&P up. So these things happen. Like you're saying, 99 is a great example. Abenomics in Japan is another great example. Um, but they happen infrequently, but they do happen. And so you have to be aware of you know those those um, different times when you have VIX up and then spot up, which S&P up. But also part of that, too, is um, you have to always, always worry about the term structure of the VIX trade. So it's not always so simple. Um, but going back to what you said about, you know, the environment we're in right now is you have, you know, not only, you know, retail traders, Robin Hooders buying options and how much that affects the damn, you know, the, the dealer gamma hedging or of those positions is you always can have these wonky environments for volatility and, and equities. There's no free lunch, right? If, if VIX and S&P were perfectly negatively correlated all the time, it'd be such an easy trade and we'd all make money, right? It's these times when you have these like three to six month period, uh, three to six week periods where VIX and S&P are kind of all over the place. They're getting a little wonky as, as you've been in the markets long enough. There's a lot of things we can't explain that we just call wonkiness. It's like saying like uh, there's dark matter in space. It's just a right. fancy way of saying, I don't know. Right. right? So <laughs> this is what happens. So what you have in hindsight is everybody's going, um, it's the Robin Hood traders. It's the SoftBank's long gamma position. I mean, yeah. long, I'm sorry, they're long vega positions, but those are farther out. Like, But they're also hedged for equity. So everybody in hindsight is trying to be a detective and get their Sherlock Holmes hat on. But even they can't 
um, all correlate around an actual explanation. So like you were talking about earlier, it's, it's not even so hard to predict the future. In hindsight, it's hard to predict the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, right? But part of it is it's just that uh, S&P and VIX can get wonky, especially when you have an environment where VIX tends to have like a bimodal distribution. What that means is simply during a risk-on cycle when volatility is suppressed, you have low VIX, and it's the, the average VIX tends to be like 12. Okay. Then you have a, a risk-off event, a violent phase shift happen, and VIX has a, a separate distribution based on a higher volatility environment where it averages around 20 to 22. So you have these two different environments. And when you're in that higher vol environment with a higher average vol, you can have more of this wonkiness between VIX and S&P. So you can actually have days when, when VIX is coming down and S&P is also drifting down, but the drift down in S&P is less than the average estimated standard deviation move of that single day. So that's how you can have these environments when you're coming from you know, high vol and it's drifting back down, where you have volatility down and S&P down in the same day, because it, they're just they're small drift moves that aren't spiking volatility back up. Now, eventually it'll drift back down where then any move in S&P will spike volatility because it's a mathematical relationship. But this is what we see over the last few weeks. And then everybody tries to decipher what, why, where, when, how, when is, you know, like, like I said, dark matter or wonkiness. Yeah, I, I guess um, the challenge for implementing one of these sort of strategies is the you, you can't trade the VIX directly. You're trading options or futures on the VIX, and so there's lots of smart guys. You know, you got Ben Eifert out there. You've got Chris Cole. You got uh, Himmelsign. You got all of these guys out there who are, um, you know, there are expectations built into the pricing that you're getting at any point in the VIX. So in an environment like this. Is this is this a is this a good environment for vol guys? Is this a tough environment for vol guys? Is it, am I just am I just am I asking you a question like you know is this a good market for equities? Is this a bad market for equities? <laughs> exactly. It's kind is of the answer question. depends. It it depends, but I'll also I'll kind of break down the buckets or how we how we view it, and that might that might be helpful. Um, if you're talking about somebody that was just purely buying options, right? You're as that as VIX is coming down, you're, you're still paying up for that implied volatility. So you don't quite have the convexity when you're buying both puts and calls. And so it makes it a, a little bit more difficult environment for buying options, right? Because you don't have that. So you could still have, you could still be directionally right. But if implied volatility came down, you, you lost on the Vegas side of that trade and you're combining that with the theta bleed. So you can, this is what uh, the Robinhood traders are going to learn a lot is like, you can be directionally right, but it's about the price you paid for that option and right. the path dependency it took to get there. And so you can be directionally right and lose money trading options. So that makes it difficult for options traders in general. I'm not going to you know speak for actually any of our individual managers. They know this, right? They've been in the game for decades. So they try to you know maneuver around this. The other way, the bucket we look at it with futures is we have managers that can trade intraday futures and they can go short those markets. So now they're not paying for that implied volatility. They're not worried about that implied volatility at all. Then it's just about continuation of the trend intraday in market indices around the world. So they, this could be potentially a target rich environment or you just don't, you never know a priori. It's just like all trend following, right? You put on the trade, you hope for the best, you have a short type top loss, you get whipsawed a lot, but eventually you make a bunch of money. So that's the way to look at the futures bucket. The, the VIX arbitrage bucket though is, um, I don't want to speak to what Ben Eifert does, but the VIX arbitrage is like a relative value trade. So it's relative value either on VIX versus S&P, which is a, the intermarket spread, or on a calendar spread on VIX. So it, those are, those give you more of a, a mean reverting pairs trade. So you don't 
any environment can be good depending on your positioning and your ratioing of those you know vix to s p positions or the vix calendar positions it's like how many units are you short versus how many units are you long depending on what the market's giving you in the vix that specific day or week so it's hard to say a priori if those are good or bad environments for the vix arb it depends on where their algorithms are positioning them if that makes sense so the the the, the vol surface the vix term structure is a little bit like um each month going out from here until the election, say, we know that there's there's an expectation of, um, there's always shenanigans around the election. There's going to be, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. There might be some volatility. And so the market is expecting volatility. So that the, I, I'm not sure if it's the October or the November, but there's a, there's a definite hump around there. And there has been for a little while, which means that traders expect there to be some vol around the election. And so there's, if, if you're there, there may be an arbitrage there where you're you may be short that volatility and long some of the more front month stuff. So, if you get a volatility event before then, uh, you catch the front month volatility and maybe you're paying for it by being short that November volatility. Maybe that maybe it's going to be a non event. I'm not yeah, necessarily so suggesting that anybody put that trade on, by yeah. the way, I'm just using that as an example. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll counterpoint you, and that will hopefully keep somebody from putting that trade on. So the, as you know, there's there's never any free trades, right? And so part of that hump in the VIX term structure is because uh, VIX is a, a, a variant swap on 30-day forward variants. So that's why that October contract, even though it expires in October, is looking out into the November election. But then you look at the November election and you're in backwardation. So what that says is, like, if you're a long front month, you have that uh, the term structure roll yield is going to kill you being long front month. And then, so then, if you went short back month, the backwardation is going to kill you. So they're not giving you. There's no any. There's not. What I'm saying is, the term structure is screwing you to like make sure there's no easy trades because there's there's no easy trades. So that's the way to look at. It. The other way we think about it sometimes internally is that I used to trade um, uh, option straddles going into earnings on like tech companies and trade the IV ramp going in pre earnings and then close out before the earnings. And what you would find a lot of times is, if the last earnings announcement was 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 pretty benign. It would be very low vol heading into this one. If the last earning ounce and beat expectations either way, all of a sudden you'd have high vol going into this one. So it was a form of recency bias. And so if we think about the last election, most people didn't predict the volatility of the last election. And so now all these smart traders are so doom and gloom and predicting, oh, Trump's not going to accept the election or Biden won't accept it. It's it's because they got caught with their pants down on the last one. And they have recency bias, and these things only happen once every four years. We have so few data points. At least, at least that's what internally I can't help but seeing that that connection or correlation with. And I'm not saying this one's not going to be contentious or any of those things, but this is why going into the last election, you would have had the vol term surface would have been much lower, and this one's much higher. And to me, it's more of a recency bias. I think there was a hump going into the last one. I think I remember Chris pointing it out to me, which is why I might have been looking yep. for it this time around. But what does that mean? It might have been, it was a pretty, there was a lot of suppressed volatility around anyway. So I think it was, um, it might have been a much lower market. When you, when you look at the going into the earnings, um, if it's, if it's high vol, are you just trying to find a way to short the vol? If it's the other way, if it's, if there's uh, low, if it's low vol, you're trying to get long the vol. How, how are you thinking about that as a trade? So previously when I say this, it's, and by the way, it's a, it's a great trade. It's just a highly capacity constrained trade. So somebody can make a, a decent living trading this, but the idea is generally that anywhere from 30 down to seven, down to three days prior to an earnings announcement, what's going to happen is more traders start to want to trade around earnings. They're going to get more into the markets and then the dealers are going to raise that implied volatility of that position. So what you're hoping for this, so I say you're riding the IV ramp. If you put on a straddle where you don't care if it's going to be up or down, 
you're playing your implied volatility and then the gamma of that position as we get closer to the to the um, announcement. But what you're looking for is basically the implied volatility to rise faster than the theta bleed on being okay. long options. And so and then you want to actually the way this trade works is you close prior to the earnings announcement. So you, a lot of times they're after hours. So you'd close that position the day. Of. Like so, for example, what's interesting is um, and I haven't seen great data on this. It's hard to get it. But like if you opened a, a, a straddle trade and that morning the IV ramp till the close that day is going to rise enough to to offset the theta for that bleed. If it doesn't, you're going to lose a little bit, but you're still long a straddle. So let's also say during that seven days prior to that, also an exogenous event happens like 9-11, you're long a straddle. So it's actually kind of a great trade, but you're right. only in it maybe one, one week a quarter. Um, but that's the idea behind it is you're just, it's just the pricing of that IV ramp. You're, you're hoping it's going to expand and that expansion of IV is going to um, offset the theta bleed, and and so that way you can pick up a you know a few pennies here and there every every earning cycle. So you're you're not implementing these strategies uh, yourselves, right? You're doing this through managers. So Mutiny Fund is a fund of funds. Is that is that a fair description? Yeah, I think that's accurate. So how how are you? I mean, how do you validate the managers? How do you uh, make sure that the the portfolio as you think about it is properly diversified across strategies what's the what's the process there so we think about it in multiple ways so the way we wanted to build this portfolio because like we said it was it was taylor and i scratching our own itch and so it was our own money going into this so we had to figure out what we wanted and part of that is the path dependencies but at the end of the day we wanted to have a portfolio that was buying as many options as possible as Nancy Davis calls it, it's debit card investing. You know what your downside risk is. You don't have a blow up risk. You can bleed to death from thousand paper cuts, but you know what exactly what's there. You don't know what your upside potential is with buying options, and that's difficult for most people. But we structured the portfolio primarily just around buying options because we knew exactly what that that PL would look like. Now, part of that, what we referenced earlier, is you can have bleed in in a risk on cycle. Um, you don't know how much or where it's necessarily going to come from, but you want to have you want to you want to kind of limit that bleed as much as possible. And we use uh, very active managers, whether it's you know um, Logica or Artemis or Headwaters, that are trying to almost like you know time that market position or load up or delever on inventory or gamma scalp if it's if it's Logica. But basically, if we can create an ensemble of active managers in that in the buying options positions, we look for primarily moneyness. So when we're looking across those, we look at like Logica's at the money straddles. So that covers kind of the at the money position, and they're gonna, you know, primarily they're 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 gonna do great maybe on a negative five to negative twenty percent move because they also have to pay for the offsetting position premium. So you're not gonna get it right at the money, but it it starts to cover, you know, those those smaller or closer to the money moves. We start to get out of the money. We're looking at like an Artemis strangle that's out of the money. You're going to get more, you know, explosivity, but you have to have that path dependencies needs to tick down far enough for that to really kick in. Um, Headwaters does uh, Matt Rao does much more opportunistic trading kind of around positions where he's looking for cheap convexity. But we're trying to primarily create the options bucket around the moneyness of the managers. So that's how we look at those manager positions and position sizing is the probability of that path dependency combined with the the moneyness of that path dependency, and then we try to overlay those or overlap those so we capture as much of the meat of the move as possible during a risk off yeah that so makes no, total sorry, sorry i was just gonna I was say that makes total sense okay well good that, that sounds good <laughs> so, so um, a, a smaller so move that, is is, is going to be logica a bigger move is going to be um coal they're less likely to happen so coal is going to be sized slightly smaller than logica and then you've got uh the bread and butter day to day is uh headwaters is that is that fair 
Yeah, and the way, and another way to look at it, and then we also look at adding managers that may ha take some basis risk after a sell-off, like uh, Diego Perea, Quadriga, that's maybe trading correlation trades or FX. Like we look at those two and we track those, and we may be adding those, you know, in the near future. But the other way to look at it too is um, if you're Chris Quale Artemis and you're maybe in the market only 40, 70 percent time trying to limit that bleed. Taylor and I worry about what happens if you have an exogenous event on a Saturday or Sunday and our managers aren't fully positioned. Logica will still be in there, but they may have a little less inventory of puts than they normally have. But we we really worry about that sleep at night of our portfolio. So we added back in those deterministic rolling puts and we use Hare Krishna on to manage those. And so that way, if there was some sort of exogenous event when markets aren't open, we always have those puts on. And so part of always having those puts on, that's why I say deterministic, because we know exactly what the bleed is going to be from those puts. But we view through taking this ensemble approach to long volatility and tail risk, we can cover that bleed. So we're happy to have it and be safe at night. So the way we look at covering the bleed of buying options is we added these periphery buckets with VIX arbitrage and short-term futures. And by having these three different market structures of, of VIX options and futures, and then an ensemble of managers inside of each of those buckets. There's a lot of like dispersions to their returns that we can harvest a rebalancing premium between them. And we try to use that overarching ensemble or mosaic approach to try to have a flat, slightly positive carry over an entire risk on cycle while we're waiting for that risk off event to happen, but we're sitting on a massive inventory uh, of, of options when that risk off happens. So we, we have that huge convexity to the down move. I think at a high level, the way we typically talk about it is like carry carry certainty and convexity, right? Like that's the trade-off space that we're dealing with. It, you know, the ideal sort of long volatility tail risk hedge. You want to have high certainty. You're capturing it. You want to have, you know, flat to slightly positive carry would be ideal, uh, and you want to have like a lot of convexity in the case of that risk off event. And so, like as Jason was saying, that ensemble approach, you know, helps us on all of those layers, right? You have the individual managers that are trying to trade off that. Um, that carry convexity, right? You know, if you're just rolling puts, you know, you know you're going to have that convexity, but it's going to really hurt your carry. And so, having lots of different managers that are doing some form of market timing and then combining them all together, right? We get the same benefits of that carry convexity that they're doing, um, but then also adding that certainty back in, you know, partially through just having the rolling puts, but then you know by having you know nine different managers, uh, you know, if two miss it and seven get like that's fine. You know, we we're able to sort of increase our our certainty there. Yeah, that, that, that makes that makes uh, an abundance of sense to me. If folks want to get in touch with you or uh, follow along with what you're doing, how do they go about doing that? So uh, mutinyfund.com is the website. We have a newsletter that we send out a couple times a month just with updates. And then uh, Twitter is probably the best place. Jason and I are both active. So Jason is, uh, his handle is Jason Mutiny and mine is uh, Taylor Pearson ME. So that's probably the best way. Um, and what's I should have asked earlier, but what's why Mutiny Fund? Why Mutiny? It's a great name. I love it. Uh, we why, uh, why Mutiny? I guess we I, was, were... I, go, I was gonna say there's as you know, Toby. There's a there's part of the function is every name's taken. Yeah. Right. So as you know, like you try to come with a business name, you're like, this is a great one, and then you Google search it, and like everything's taken. Uh, but it was a combination of factors. One. Uh, we had all these highfalutin names like ataraxia, which was, you know, Greek for like unperturbed by external events. And luckily, Taylor's wife and my girlfriend were like, no. Too hot. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All that stuff. So I uh, always had this idea of mutiny kind of in the back of our heads because from multiple perspective, it comes actually one of them from Hugh Hendry. It was always talking about uh, Crispin Odie of like. 
the 70s and 80s swashbuckling CTAs that were running like 40 ball. And it's like, where have all those pirates gone? So we were thinking about that in the back of our minds. But also um, there was a mutiny club in the 70s and 80s in, in Miami in Coconut Grove. And it was like this meeting place for eccentrics. So you would have spies from Europe, uh, South American industrialists, and then like the whole like cocaine cowboys trade. But it was it was not only it was a it was a nightclub and a hotel, and it was like every room was different. It was just this amazing place. And so you know, outside the the drug part is like we look at it as like a meeting of the minds of eccentrics and and trying to you know bring together all these different worlds. And then we just, you know, love the idea of, you know, from a marketing perspective, you know, what what mutiny gives us. And we just we know we're different. We're outsiders anyway. So instead of pretending like we're not outsiders, we just kind of play into it, I guess, a little more than other people would. Yeah, that's great. I'm really envious. That's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, gents. That's all I have time for. Cheers, Toby. <laughs>